Yeah, so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We are finishing out our study in the book of Jonah by going to Matthew. So let me bring you up to speed. If those of you who are visiting, maybe this is your first time, maybe you've been gone for, for uh, a good part of the early summer, uh, let me bring you up to speed. We are just finishing, this is our last sermon in a series on the book of Jonah. So maybe if you're familiar with him, just a brief overview of the life of Jonah. Jonah, a prophet, is called by God. Specifically, God calls him in chapter one. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh's great city, population 120,000. It's the capital of a, of a nation called Assyria. These people are incredibly violent, incredibly immoral, incredibly unjust. And God says, I want you to go to them and I want you to preach a message of judgment that they must repent or they will be overturned. Now, Jonah hears this, this commission and he goes exactly in the opposite direction. So Nineveh is as far east on the map as Jonah can conceive. It's in the eastern portion of Iraq. And instead, he goes to Tarshish, which is the tip of Spain, the far west portion of the known world. So he has no intent, no intention of obeying God. And he flees and God, in his mercy... And in his love for Jonah, but also the Ninevites, pursues Jonah, hurls a great storm against him. Long story short, he's tossed overboard, sinks into the depths, and he is swallowed by a great fish. He prays a prayer of repentance. He is vomited out onto land. And this time he does go to Nineveh and he does preach. And when he preaches, he has the most successful evangelistic preaching campaign in the history of all the Old Testament prophets. And the whole city, including the cattle, repent. Well, the cattle don't necessarily repent, but they fast involuntarily because the people of Nineveh make everyone fast and repent. And he's furious. He's furious. And God ends the book of Jonah with, shouldn't I have compassion on these people who don't know their right hand from their left and so many cattle? End of the story. And that's where we ended last week. That's where we ended last week. So today, today we are going to start with a question here as we overview the book of Jonah and take a look at the sign of Jonah. And here's the question. How do you and I move from a place of conviction to change? Now, what is conviction? Conviction means that at some point in time in your life, you feel bad for something. You feel bad. Maybe you've gone through the book of Jonah and you identify with Jonah. You know, I'm a lot like Jonah. I feel bad that I don't have compassion on others who are not like me. I feel bad that I don't share my faith and I know that I ought to. Or maybe you're like the Ninevites. Ninevites. I feel bad that I'm a horribly violent person who, who is hedonistic and gives in to my every whim whenever I want to do what I do. I just, and I, you know, I feel some conviction. I feel bad that I'm not who God wants me to be. Now, if you've never felt bad for anything in your life, you, by definition, are a sociopath. And that's not a good thing. So feeling bad for, for wrongdoing is a good thing. But what if you're stuck? What if you identify so much with Jonah that every single week you just feel like it's bam, 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 boom. You're just getting beat up by the scriptures like, you know, I'm just like Jonah and I, I keep fleeing to Tarshish. 
and I know I ought not to flee to Tarshish, but I don't want to go to Nineveh. Or I know that I ought to repent of my sins, but I feel like I... I feel like I'm too far gone. God could never have mercy on me and I don't, I don't know how to change. How do you go from conviction, the feeling that you should change but don't know how, to actually being changed? Well, let me tell you how not to do it. You ready? I love to do this. It's so ridiculous, but it's so common in churches. Stop being like Jonah. That's the lesson. There you go. Be like Jesus. He's awesome. Jonah's not. So just be more like Jesus. Let's all pray and go home. That's moralism. It helps no one. It just makes you feel worse. And yet, I guarantee you that within the body of Christ, what passes for preaching is moralism. Just try harder this week. I'm not going to tell you to try harder because you've already failed a million times. Trying harder doesn't change anything. If anything, you try harder and you become successful in becoming externally righteous. You know what Jesus called those people? Twice the sons of hell that they were before. So that's, that's not an option. So what do we need to do? We need to see Jesus, the gospel, in the story of Jonah. The gospel is our only hope. It's not how we change. We, in and of ourselves, in our own strength, and our own power, cannot change. We can only feel bad because we're more like Jonah than we're not. But Christ... Christ did what Jonah never did. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is going to wrap up the series for us by preaching about Jonah. We're going to ride in on his coattails and we're going to listen to what he has to say to the Pharisees and his disciples about the sign of Jonah. Three things we're going to take a look at this morning. Number one, the context. We have to understand the context by which this discussion or this, this sermon comes to us through Matthew. What's going on uh, amongst the hearers, the listeners, when Jesus is preaching this for the first time, and he's going to talk about the sign of Jonah. Then we're going to look at the sign of Jonah, what he said. What is it? What is it? And then we're going to take a look at how do we respond? How do we respond? So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read the text that we're going to cover We'll pray and we'll jump right into it. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Father, we come to you uh, and we are asking that your spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, that we might see and perceive what the sign of Jonah is. That we would be like those in Nineveh who heard the preaching of Jonah and repented and changed. Lord, apart from you, we can do no good thing, including repent. So spirit, we are dependent upon you to move in our hearts. I pray that you would encourage those who are broken this morning 
who are just at their wits end and they don't know where to turn. I pray that you would break those who are self-sufficient, who do not sense their need of you. Would you show them their need? And I pray, Father, for all of us that we would be drawn to Christ who is lifted up and exalted on high. Spirit, would you make sure that this morning's message is one that lifts Jesus high, that he might be worshiped and adored. Help me to preach to that end. It's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, we have to understand the context. So if you're opening your Bibles, the context in Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus preaching and teaching and healing, and we see a, a building tension, a building tension between him and, well, quite truthfully, people that are like Jonah. They have this spirit like Jonah. They're Israelites, but they're just, well, not just, they're self-righteous. And they're the ones who, they think they're the ones who can dispense God's grace. So there's this building tension between Jesus and I'm going to call them the Jonas of his age. Jesus and the Jonas. So Jesus, Jesus in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, he, he's pushing their buttons regarding the issue of the Sabbath. Right away, you see him walking through grain fields with his disciples, and, and it's on the Sabbath, and, and they're hungry, and so they're, they're taking the, the grain off of the, off of the stock, and they're rubbing it in their hands, and they're eating the kernels. It's kind of like, how many of you like pistachios? You like pistachios? You got to break the pistachio shell, and then you eat the nut or the sunflower seeds. You, you break the sun. See, that's what they're doing. They're getting to the kernel. They're getting to the kernel, and the Pharisees are like, ha ha, stop. You're violating the Sabbath. You are not allowed to break pistachio shells, sunflower seed shells, or any such thing to get at the kernel. Do it on Friday. Don't do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, I don't know that he ever puts his fingers on his temples, but that's just how I imagine. This is how I would be. I'd be like, okay, have you not read the scriptures that when David was famished with his men. He went into the, 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 the place and ate the showbread, which is only authorized for the priests to eat. And don't you understand that the high priests and the priests on the Sabbath, they do work and yet they don't defile themselves. So there's this building tension. There's this building tension. And then he goes into a synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. A man with a withered hand. And he heals the man with a withered hand. And the, the, the Pharisees are like, Heal on the other days. You're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, listen, if your donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, do you not pull the animal out? Of course you do. So you see this building, building tension. And then in verse 15 through 21, take a look here. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. Jesus withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them and, and all, healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Then Matthew quotes Isaiah. Take a look at this. This is, this is important. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Because they're Gentiles. This, these little Jonas, these new Jonas, they're not hip on the whole taking the gospel or taking the good news to the Gentiles. It's an Israelite thing. 
Those Gentiles are unclean. So he's, he's healing on the Sabbath. He's talking about taking justice and, and mercy to the Gentiles. They're becoming agitated with Jesus. And then in verse 22 through 32, Jesus is now accused of working hand in hand with Satan. And in this context, Jesus contact, or comes in contact with someone who is possessed by a demon. And so what does he do? Jesus, because he's merciful, because he has compassion on this poor man, he, he casts this demon out. And people are like, oh my goodness, could, the, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the anointed one? And the Pharisees say, no, no, it's only by the power of Beelzebub that he's casting out demons. So, so far, we've been eating on the Sabbath. We've been healing people on the Sabbath. We've been taking justice to the Gentiles. And now we've been casting people, uh, casting demons out of people who are oppressed. And that's all the work of Satan. Who are you people? So what happens next? Jesus is starting to get angry. Take a look here. Take a look. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Okay, just a social clue for those of you who are wondering. If anyone ever calls you and people in your church a brood of vipers, it's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. It's probably an indication that you've done something to irritate them. Jesus is getting angry. Now, what was God's question to Jonah twice? in Jonah chapter four. You remember? Do you do well to be angry? Does Jesus at this moment do well to be angry? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, why? He's not angry primarily because they're rejecting him. He's angry because they are hindering people from entering the kingdom of heaven. They're not interested in in setting loose those who are oppressed by demons. They're not interested in bringing healing to those who were afflicted by the enemy. They're only interested in power. They're only interested in propping up their own self-righteous agenda. They don't care. See, that's how you know your anger is righteous. When it's not about you, but it's about the fact that others are not receiving God's mercy. So yes, he does well to be angry. And that brings us to the question, or the rather the request in chapter 12, verse 38. They ask for a sign. So let's take a look at the sign, the sign of Jonah. Let's take a look. They ask, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, teacher, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, stop. Why? Why do they want a sign? What is it they're looking for? Here's what's going on. Okay, mister, I heal on the Sabbath and I have the power to cast out demons. If you who are who you say you are, prove it. Show us some sign. Show it. Now, what's ironic about this? What's ironic about this? There's a number of things that are ironic. Let's, Let's just start with what should be obvious. He's already done at least two in chapter 12. So far, just in chapter 12, we've seen two. He's healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, but that didn't count because it was on the Sabbath. And you clearly can't do anything good on the Sabbath because that's work. Oh, and he's also cast out a demon, but that doesn't count because obviously he's in league with with Satan and that's where he's actually getting his power to heal and to cast out demons. 
He's already done two signs, but those weren't good enough. Those weren't good enough. Just a quick rabbit trail. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, who don't have enough evidence, are you sure evidence is the problem? There's nothing wrong with wanting evidence, but are you sure that that's the issue? Because it's not the issue for the Pharisees. They had evidence. They just were blind to it. So how does Jesus respond? He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Before we get to the prophet Jonah and that sign, let me ask you this. Did Jesus do signs? Yes, it's not a true question. Yes, he did. If you read the gospel of John, John talks about this sign, that sign, the other sign, all the signs that Jesus did, which, which validated his claims. Signs are important. The Bible's filled with all these different signs. Look, hey, this guy, he's the son of God. This sign points to who he is and his claims. You should, you should look at him. And, and John writes at the end of his book that Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. If, if they were all written, there weren't, there weren't, this book's not big enough. There's not enough books in the world to fill them. But these are written and recorded that you might know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and by believing, have life in his name. So yes, Jesus did signs, but he never does them on request. He never does them on request. And those who ask for the signs, like Herod and like the Pharisees, pull a rabbit out of your hat, walk on water, then we'll believe, come down off of that cross, then we'll believe. By the way, he did come down off the cross and he rose again and they still didn't believe. So it's not about evidence. But he does say, I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? No sign, except the sign of Jonah. So let's take a look. What is the sign of Jonah? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he says, yeah, I'll give you a sign. You want to see a sign? Sign of Jonah. Now, he's talking about something that's happened in the past, the life of Jonah, which everyone in, this, in his audience is intimately familiar with. So he doesn't need to go, he doesn't need to open up Jonah and read from the scroll and teach him about this and that. They all knew that. So it's, it's like all of you who had been through the, the, the sermon series on Jonah. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I remember we went through it. Got it. Check. I, I know the story. They know the story. They know the story. So he says something in the past is connected to something that's in the future pertaining to Jesus. That, that, I'll give you that sign. I'm not going to do any miracles for you today, but keep an eye out on me. Just watch me. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. What does he say? He says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So as Jonah, me. So you know the story of Jonah, so watch me. Watch me. In the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth. Then he transitions. And then the men of the Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this, that, this generation and they will condemn it. 
For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, I want to stop right, right here for a second. Do you remember Jonah chapter 3? What was Jonah's message to the Ninevites? It's really short. It, was, it's, it takes me at least 40 minutes to get a message out. It takes Jonah about 30 seconds to get his message out. You ready for Jonah's sermon? 40 more days and you're toast. Mic drop. That's it. Boy, wouldn't the service be short if I preached like Jonah? Some of you are like, yes, please. Okay, yeah, that's all he said. And what did they do? They repented. (gasps) Oh, God's going to overturn our city. We should all repent. At no point did they ask Jonah for a sign. At no point, at least that we know of, it's not recorded. So they repented. And he says, listen, those individuals, those Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah, they're going to stand before you and they're going to say, seriously, you wanted a sign? And they're going to condemn you. And you're going to be cast into the abyss where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because someone greater than Jonah is here preaching to you and you won't repent. So that's the sign of Jonah. What's it mean? What's it mean? I was talking with Josh, whom you saw briefly just a moment ago, a couple weeks ago, and as he was preparing for a message that he did downtown uh, on a Sunday night preaching on Jonah, he said, did you know that on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which has been done every year by Jewish people since the time of Moses, it's where the high priest goes and he makes a sacrifice for sin for himself, And then he puts his hand on what is called the scapegoat, and that scapegoat is sent out into the wilderness, uh, abandoned by God's people and set to roam and and wander. And another lamb is then sacrificed for the sins of the people, and the blood of that animal is taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat to make atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people. So the high priest is interceding for a sinful nation, a sinful people, so they can come before a holy God. So that's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And to this day, to this day, they have a, every Yom Kippur, they have a series of scripture readings from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then on the afternoon, for thousands and thousands of years, Jewish people read the entire book of Jonah. Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. They read the entire book of Jonah. What does the book of Jonah have to do with the Day of Atonement? What does the book of Jonah have to do with, with Yom Kippur? So much so that Jews have been reading it for thousands of years. Well, here's what one rabbi said in, in a magazine called The Jewish Standard. This is just from a few years back, 2017. Jewish uh, rabbi Brock Block says, its message, that is the book of Jonah, is clear. The eternal, that is God, is quick to forgive those who truly repent and resolve to mend their ways and then do so. Here's the gist of it. Here's what he said. If the Holy One will forgive the people of Nineveh, should the Holy One not also forgive the children of Israel? Catch that. Catch Catch the essence of what he's saying. Listen to it. I mean, seriously. The Ninevites are awful. If, if God would forgive the Ninevites, won't he also forgive us? Because we're not nearly as bad. I mean, that's, 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 if you read between the lines, that's, that's what's being said. And 
They're right. He's right. It's a, that is exactly what ha- Yes, God showed mercy on the Ninevites. So will he not also have mercy on Jonah? He did. We just saw it. The, the central theme of the book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's about the scandalous, and I mean scandalous, forgiveness of God towards people like the Ninevites and towards self-righteous Pharisees like Jonah. But I have a question that we need to resolve. How does he forgive? How? On what basis? Okay, do you know who the Ninevites were? Do you remember their sins? Do you remember how bad they were? They were awful. They were, they were unjust. They were wicked. They were violent. They would go into cities. They would gut the soldiers, skin them alive. Sorry if there's children. But they would take infants by the ankle, ankles, and then they would bash the infant skulls on rocks. Okay, now I want you to just think for a second. You are a recipient of their evil and their unjust ways. And then Jonah comes in and preaches 40 more days and you'll be overturned and, and they all repent and God says, okay, you're forgiven. How, how are you with that? How are you, how does God, where does he get off? Granting mercy to people who if they receive justice would receive death. How does he do that? How? You see, that's what Jonah was thinking. How do you get off forgiving those people? I knew it. I knew you were going to be merciful to those people. That's why Jonah was mad. And so, so Jonah looks at that and he's frustrated with God's mercy. He's frustrated that God has compassion on clearly unjust, wicked people. Oh, all you got to do is say, I'm sorry, and that just covers it? How does that even work? It doesn't seem right. But then there's Jonah the rebellious prophet. How does God forgive him? I mean, think about this. God says, go here. And he's like, no, it's like flipping God the bird and then just getting on the boat and going the other way. How does he forgive him? How does he do that? On what basis? So is that, is that it? So, so repentance, I'm sorry, God. I promise to change. And then on the crazy, crazy, probably not, not realistic chance that you do change, like that undoes the past? I agree with his assessment, but I'm asking how. You've got to look to the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, as Jonah was cast in the belly of the whale so the Son of Man must be in the belly of the earth. Jonah and Jesus' life are parallels. Jesus lived the life that Jonah never could live. And he lived the life that you cannot live. Some of you are many Jonas. You're religious people. You grew up in church. You're not like me. I grew up a pagan, a hedonist, a Ninevite. But you grew up going to church and you tried to keep the law. But here's the deal. No one is justified by observing the law because the law, we don't become righteous by observing it. We just become aware that we're not righteous. I mean, that's what the law does. But Jesus, unlike Jonah, every time his father made his will known, Jesus did it. 
He did it to the nth degree. The life that we can't live, that Jonah never lived, that you'll never live, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Secondly, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so Jesus was in the belly of the earth. He was buried. The pen, he took the penalty that we can't pay. See, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. That is not just physical death, but spiritual separation from God. And that's hell. Jesus experienced the consequences of Jonah's rebellion. Jesus experienced the consequences of the Ninevites' injustice. Jesus experienced the consequences of my sin and your iniquity. Jesus died the death you can't afford to die. But Jesus rose again. Jesus accomplished the victory that you and I cannot attain. I love the song that we sang right before the end of the worship time. When death was arrested and my life began. You see, when Jesus went into the belly of the earth, he arrested death. See, the enemy had it the other way around. The enemy thought that that it's Jesus who is being arrested, that it's God's whose hands were shackled, that it was mankind who was falling into ruin because the Son of Man was now dead. But in that death, Christ, as he uttered these words, it is finished. Do you know what these words mean? It means that everything that you and I and Jonah and the Ninevites deserved, because of our self-righteousness, because of our injustice, because of our hedonism, because of our rebellion, all of the separation that you and I deserve, Christ received that. And that is why from the cross, he uttered the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken. The father turned his head away from his beloved son. And Christ suffered in a way that you and I cannot and will not ever suffer. But he arrested death and he rose again. He was not vomited from the belly of a fish, but he rose triumphantly from a tomb. And the stone was rolled away, not so that he could get out, but he could show us that he's not there. That's the sign of Jonah. The gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Do you know who it's for? It's for Ninevites. It's for those people who don't know their right hand from their left. They're just living hedonistic pagan lives. They're out there on their lawns as you were driving to church, cracking a Bud Light, waiting for the sun to come out. And they're not here worshiping. They're just following their own stomachs and following their own sexual drives, wherever that leads them. And they're just, they have no clue. And Christ died for them. But he also died for the self-righteous Jonas who despise those people and their immorality who think that they're righteous and because they, they know God and they know his law. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's for all those people in the whole spectrum. 
So what do we do with it? How do we respond to the sign of Jonah? How do we respond? We could respond. There's three choices. We could respond like the Pharisees. We could demand a sign. We could reject him. And if we do, if you do, then the people of Nineveh will rise up and they will condemn you on that day. Because you've heard of the sign of Jonah. You've heard of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you have presuppositions that you're not willing to wrestle with to consider the implications of who Jesus is. You say, well, if he appeared to me and he talks to me out of the sky, well, then I might consider. He has spoken through his word. And he has testified to the authority of his word through signs, wonders, and miracles. And that's why the gospel is written. And if you are there, I plead with you, doubt your own doubts with the same veracity that you doubt the authority of God's word. Examine those doubts. Examine the claims of Christ. Come back this fall when we start our series answering life's great questions, encountering Jesus. Questions like, what does it mean to be good? What is purpose? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Some of the questions that you have that maybe hold you back, we're going to see how Jesus addresses those. But don't walk away. Don't walk away and assume that you know when an encounter with Jesus is exactly what you need. You might not be like the Pharisees. You see, there's, there's a group of people that are following Jesus. Some of them are hostile to Jesus, the Pharisees. Some of them are followers of Jesus, the disciples. But most of them are like, I don't know what to do with Jesus. I, he seems like a good guy. He seems pretty awesome. I just don't know what, what does he have to do with me. Call you an inquirer. You're like most of the people in the crowd. Keep following. Come and see. Draw near to him. Learn more. Again, come this fall as we get into the uh, Searching for Answers series, Encountering Jesus. But probably a majority of you would consider yourselves to be followers of Christ. You consider yourselves to be disciples. Great. Keep following. Keep following. By the way, the disciples, did they always understand what Jesus was, was saying? No. They were confused half the time, misinformed, but he poured the Holy Spirit out on them at Pentecost. And so we, as we follow Jesus, we're growing. We haven't arrived. We won't arrive until he returns or takes us home to be with him. But we grow in the meantime. Keep drawing near to him. Keep stepping. Keep stepping. And I'm going to say this. This is important. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean that on the days, and there are many, when I look at myself and I look at my quote-unquote disobedience to Christ and my failure to do his will, I think to myself, surely God is done with me. And I'm, I'm discouraged and I want to pout and I want to whine and I want to feel sorry for myself. It's at that moment that I need to preach the gospel to myself and remember the sign of Jonah, that he lived the life that I could not live. And the father looks at me and says, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of my actions, but because of my faith in Christ who's fulfilled his will. 
will. He's taken my condemnation so that the word of God is true concerning me and all those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for any of you who are in Christ. Do you know the one thing that Jesus is drawn to? Do you know what causes Jesus' heart to just draw near to you? Do you know what it is? Weakness. And that's the beauty of the gospel, the sign of Jonah. I can recognize that I'm weak and I can cry out to him, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that, he loves that. Do you know what he's repelled by? Pride. I got this. I don't need him. So you see, that's so beautiful. That's the gospel. You can draw near to him. You can draw near to him. And in drawing near to him, you can also go to those who need him. You can go to your Nineveh, which for some of you is your kitchen table and the kids around it, the little Ninevites and their injustice and their violence or your spouse or your neighbors or the people you go to school with or the people that you work with, our culture. Or you can go to your Jonas. We all need the gospel, irrespective of Ninevite or Jonah, hedonistic or self-righteous. The gospel's available to all of us. All of us. And join us this fall as we search for answers, searching for answers, encountering Jesus. This is a series that will speak to both those who have been following Jesus for years and those who are not sure who Jesus is. And invite your Ninevite friends. Invite your self-righteous Jonah friends. We all need the exact same thing. The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Before we close, I want to encourage you. If you have trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to consider baptism. And if you've already been baptized, I want to direct you to our website. Go, this is brand new. I said this a couple weeks ago when we had our baptisms. I was like, hey, we need to put those stories on the web. Sorry, staff, for putting you under pressure and just making, I won't do that anymore. But I'll try to run it by you first before we do this. But nonetheless, they did. They put those stories on the web. And this is something um, I believe we'll continue to do. So there's three stories up there now. In, in years from now, there, hopefully there's going to be hundreds of stories. Hundreds of stories. So you can go, you can click connect on our website, graceb3.com, click connect, and you'll see baptism stories right at the top. You can scroll down and you can read those stories, stories of redemption, stories of Ninevites, stories of Jonah's, little self-righteous Jonah's. We got all of them. There's only three of them. But there's going to be more to come. And then in the years to come, you can go to that page and you can scroll and you can just, you know what that does to your heart to read stories of redemption? It gives you hope. Or you can go to the Facebook and spend hours on there. And what does that do to your heart? Well, you can answer that question. And if you want to learn more about being baptized, you can click that button there. I'll show you how to take your next steps. We're going to end the service by standing symbolically. So if you'd please stand. It's a way to acknowledge that we are to do more than passively hear God's word. We're to do something with it. So we're going to end the service on our feet to communicate to God that we're ready to obey with our hands and feet and go to Nineveh, wherever that is, in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit and the sign of Jonah, which is the gospel.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a merciful God, steadfast and merciful, not um, giving us what our sins deserve, but giving us your mercy, and that mercy was purchased and made available by the cross. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. We worship you because you're worthy of our worship. And Father, I pray that you would open up the eyes and the hearts of those who are hardened, who have not yet received you, or who are blind. They don't understand. I pray that you would help them to see, that, the, that their eyes would be open, that they would see, Lord, your great love for them and your mercy, and that they would cry out with a simple sinner's prayer, Jesus, I am a sinner. Save me. Make me like your son. Father, do that in the hearts of those who call out to you. In spirit, we pray to you. We ask you that you would make us a people, a people that are holy, a people that are compassionate, a people that speak the truth in love, a people that are unafraid to be your witnesses in a culture which is sprinting away from you. Lord, we pray that you would have your way and that Christ would be exalted and that through his exaltation, all men would be drawn to yourself. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace.